Support for this podcast comes from ClickIQ. ClickIQ's groundbreaking automated talent attraction technology enables recruiters to spend less time looking for applicants and more time hiring great people by managing and optimising their recruitment advertising. ClickIQ's platform advertises roles across the largest network of PPC job boards and social media to reach the best active and passive candidates in the most cost-effective way. Using the latest AI and programmatic technology, ClickIQ ensures that jobs are always advertised in the right place, at the right time, and for the right amount of money, saving recruiters both time and budget. To find out how ClickIQ can help automate, manage, and optimise your talent attraction strategy, please visit www.clickiq.co.uk. That's www.clickiq.co.uk. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 137 of the Recruiting Future podcast. As regular listeners will know, AI and its implications for the future of work and jobs is a very popular topic on this show. I feel it's really important to keep exploring it from various different viewpoints, as it's such a critical theme for the future of HR and recruiting. With all this in mind, I'm delighted that my guest this week is Byron Rees, author, futurist and publisher at leading technology research and media company GigaOM. Byron has a slightly different perspective on the future of work and jobs than some of my previous guests, so this interview is well worth listening to. Hi Byron and welcome to the podcast. So thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. Could you just introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Well, my name is Byron Reese, and by day I run a technology research company called GigaOM. And by night I write books about the future. And uh, specifically, my most recent one is called The Fourth Age. And it's about all of the big questions about artificial intelligence everyone is asking. Fantastic. And I know that um, everyone who listens to this podcast is uh, um, artificial intelligence, AI is, uh, is, is kind of a massive uh, topic for them. Um, just to sort of, um, you know, I, I dig in and sort of find out a bit more about the book. Um, it, it's called The Fourth Age. Why is, why is, why is this The Fourth Age? Well, I, I put forth the idea that there have been three times in history that a new technology has come along and actually it's usually a group of technologies has come along and changed the trajectory of the human race forever. And the first of these happened a hundred thousand years ago when we got speech, uh, which is our singular ability as a species. And we got that at the same time we got fire and those two were joined together and that fire let us cook food and, and we could eat more calories and we developed speech. The second one was 10,000 years ago. That's when we got agriculture and the city and the division of labor and all of that. And the third one was 5,000 years ago when we got writing and the wheel, which gave us the necessary ingredients for a nation state. And so I put forth the idea that we're entering a fourth age, a fourth thing like those other three, like getting speech that's that big and profound and will set the human race 
off in a different direction. And I try to answer these questions. Well, uh, you know, is AI, what's it going to do to employment? And, and um, is it going to take over the world? And should we be afraid of it? And even can machines be conscious? In- interesting. And, um, you know, I suppose it, you know, the, the, the next logical question is to, is to ask you what you found the answers to those questions were. Um, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what makes up this fourth age? What's happening? What, what are the, what are the, what are the changes and, and what can we expect? Well, the interesting thing about the book I wrote is I never tell you what I think. Um, because the questions that I try to answer, which are, uh, three specifically, what is AI going to do to employment and are we going to be able to build a general intelligence and AI is smart as human and, and is that a good thing or not? And then can machines become conscious? I identify all of those as fundamentally philosophical questions. They, uh, and I try to kind of get at the assumptions underneath each one of them. And because they're kind of philosophical questions, they're not technical. Uh, I, I kind of set them up for the reader, but I, you know, like one, one question I pose is, are human beings machines? Well, if you think you're a machine, uh, as many people in Silicon Valley do, then it stands to reason you can build a mechanical human. And if you can build a mechanical human, you can make a better one. If you don't believe you're a machine, then almost by definition, there are things that machines can do, can't do, that people can do. And so I try to set all of that up, but the reader isn't buying my book so I will tell them if they are a machine or not. They have an opinion about that. My job is to um, tell them or kind of explore what the answers to those questions mean. So I pose three philosophical questions to my reader, and then I, uh, I try to work through those. Now, all of that being said, I, of course, have opinions on it because I have a belief on whether I'm a machine or not, just like anybody else. But the book, I try to be a guide that kind of walks anybody through those questions. So I think that's interesting, I suppose, particularly the um, AI and employment question. How, you know, talk me through how you kind of, how you kind of break that down. What's the, um, what's the philosophy, what's the philosophy behind it? And also what, what are we seeing happening now and what might we see happening in the future? Well, excellent question. So, there are really only three possible things that could happen. There are only three narratives that you hear. Um, and, and if you bucket them like that, it's kind of easy to wrap your head around them. So one of them is that automation is going to take a lot of quote unquote low skilled jobs. And there's going to be a sizable number of people who can't compete with machines in the future. And we're going to have kind of a permanent great depression and there's going to be the haves and the have-nots and, and all of that. And that's a viewpoint, that robots will take some of the jobs. Then there's another viewpoint that says, ho, oh, oh, don't kid yourself. Um, they're going to take every job. If they can do work that somebody with an IQ of 100 can do, then they can do work that somebody with an IQ of 120 can do, and then 140, and then 160. They'll write better poetry. They'll... They'll do everything better. And the minute that a machine can learn a new task faster than a human, it's game over. And every job is going to go to robots. And that's the robots will take all the jobs. And then there's a view that says, look, for 250 years, 
this country has had essentially full employment. The United States and the West in general has had essentially full employment. It's been between 5 and 10%, without exception, other than the Depression, which wasn't caused by technology. But for 250 years, we basically, everybody's worked. But we've had technologies come along uh, as disruptive as AI, right? We had electricity and we had uh, mechanization of labor. It used to be, you know, you had to use animals for everything and then you got steam. We had the assembly line, which is how everything's made now. And these incredibly disruptive technologies came along and unemployment never bumped. And so you say, hmm, why would that be? And that viewpoint that that on net, the robots aren't going to take any jobs, that there's an infinite number of jobs is the third choice. And so what I try to do is go through each of those choices and understand the assumptions behind them. Like I said, I personally have an opinion. Uh, I, I'm, I, I believe I'm in the camp of people that, that find it the historic precedent that we've had rising wages and full employment in a world of incredible of technological disruption, quite compelling. And and I hear a narrative oftentimes that I consider to be largely uh, false when it goes like this. And you may have heard a variant of this. It says, look, technology is really good at making high-skilled, high-paying jobs like a geneticist. But unfortunately, it destroys low-skilled, low-paying jobs like an order taker at a fast food restaurant. And then, and here's the part that kind of in the great shell game, I think things get mixed up. Here's what people say. They say, do you really think that unemployed order taker at the fast food restaurant going to become a geneticist? And then people say, yeah, I guess they're not, are they? But the answer to the question is, well, no, they're not going to become a geneticist. A, high, uh, a college biology professor is going to get the geneticist job. And then a high school biology professor gets hired at the college and then a substitute teacher gets hired at the high school all the way down. The question is not, can that person quote at the bottom do that new job at the top? The question is, can everybody do a job a little bit harder than the job they do today? And if the answer to that question is yes, then that explains 250 years of history that technology creates great new jobs, destroys bad jobs, and everybody shifts up a notch. Everybody gets a promotion. And that's why you've had rising wages for 250 years uh, with the backdrop of full employment. And that's why everyone, for the most part, remains employable. So I find that very compelling. I don't think that there's anything in artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation that we see today that's fundamentally different than, say, electricity or mechanization or, or any of these big changes. And so then I, I tried to explore, well, specifically what skills are useful in the future and, and what kinds of jobs are there going to be? And, you know, the number one question I get when I'm, when I'm out talking about this is what can I – what should my kids study to be relevant in the future and, and be employable or, or what should I study to be relevant and employable in the future? And so I get that a lot. Um, uh, that's really interesting stuff. And I, um, that's not a, that's not a view I've kind of, um, 
um not not a view i've heard very often i think that people tend to um you know tend to kind of default to the um default to the kind of extremes when it comes to you know when it when it comes to this so the idea of kind of everyone um everyone stepping up i think you know that that kind of makes a makes a lot of sense um it would be really remiss of me now not to ask as my next question uh you know what 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 should my child be studying um you know what jobs do you envisage in the future and what you know what skills are going to be important um as the uh, you know as the world is changing so let, let, i'll work that question a little bit in reverse if i can 25 years ago 1993 the mosaic browser was released that was kind of the first you know widely used consumer web browser and let's say you went back in time 25 years and um and you told somebody hey hey, in just a quarter century, we're going to have connected 2 billion computers with this technology. And really, that's all the internet is. It's just a communications protocol. All it is is computers can talk to each other. That's the internet. That's the beginning and end of it. So what do you think is going to happen past you um, if 2 billion people all of a sudden have these machines that talk to each other? If you had been really farsighted, you would have said, well, newspapers are going to have a hard time. And, uh, oh, the yellow pages are probably going to take it on the chin and, uh, oh, stockbrokers and travel agents, you know, they're probably going to be out of work and you would have been right about everything, right? You, it's, it's really easy to seize places where jobs vanish, but what would you have not seen? You would have never seen Google or Amazon or eBay or Etsy or Facebook or Twitter or Airbnb or Uber or Lyft or Baidu or or Alibaba or 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 you would not have seen twenty-five trillion dollars worth of wealth, a million small businesses or more, depending on how you want to count them. How you never would have imagined any of that happening. You wouldn't have seen web designers. All of it. All of it. And so what happens normally is it's really easy to see where the jobs will vanish and it's very hard to see where they're going to be created so how do you operate in a world how do you how do you think about a world where you need to say well what skills are going to be useful in 25 years from now and so the number one skill is really easy that is um, the ability to teach yourself new things and the good news is we're all really good at that i mean what do you do on a day-to-day basis in your job that you learned how to do in in school for most of us it's relatively small there's only one class I could have taken in high school that would be meaningfully useful to me now. Do you want to, can you guess what that is? Um, typing. Typing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and you see, so that's it. That's it. That's what you could have taken in high school where you'd say, yeah, I learned that in high school and it is really useful to me today. And you never would have guessed that, right? So the number, the number one thing is the ability to teach yourself new things. And we already do it. You come in and you, you know, some new word comes across and you're like, holy cow, what's that? And you go to Wikipedia and then you follow a link and, you know, four hours later, you're an expert on it. And that's what we all do. And that's the great skill. Uh, the number two skill is the ability to communicate. You think about a factory model. You know, I think my my parents' generation probably never wrote anything after they left college. We write constantly, all day, every day. And we speak to each other and we have, you know, calls and we work in teams. And so the ability to communicate, 
uh, is probably like the second one. So, uh, and then there's all kinds of things that never would have imagined, never would have imagined would have mattered in the factory era, which are things like, uh, you know, reading body language and, and all of, all of these kind of soft social skills. You know, it's, it's really fascinating because when the ATM came out, people said, well, that's the end of bank tellers. I mean, after all, the thing's an automatic teller machine. It doesn't get a lot more obvious than that. And yet, the fact is, we have more we have more bank tellers today than when the ATM came out. And why would that be? Well, the ATM lowered the cost of opening a bank branch. And so banks opened more branches, and every one of them needed tellers. And the teller's job changed from a transactional one to a relationship job. In other words, instead of here's my check, give me $200, it's now, hey, do you need a student loan? So it became a relationship job. Likewise, um, nobody saw the open source movement. There are people who write source code and give it away for free. What is a worse business model than that? Well, it turns out that's a great one because the product, the transaction, the code is commoditized, but but the people who wrote the code are in great demand because the code needs to be customized. Or let me give you a, a more relatable example. You may have heard that Google Translate is now as good as a human translator. What do you think that's going to do to the demand for human translators? Well, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, it is going to skyrocket. Now, why would that be? Well, when the transactional part of translation drops to zero, when it's easy to translate a letter or an email, everybody does it. And then everybody says, oh, we can sell our product in this country. Then all of a sudden, there's a contract that needs a translator. And then there's a face-to-face meeting that needs a translator. And then there's how do we localize our product, which needs a translator. And then there's a phone call, which needs a translator. And so what we see with technology all the time is when it drops the price of something to zero, it creates an enormous amount of demand for something similar to that. The internet dropped the price of communicating to your customers to zero through email. And as, as such, you know, you get this explosion of small businesses who can now communicate with their customers for zero. So I think what's going to, the, the net of all of that is in the future, more jobs are going to be relationship than transactional. More jobs are going to be about what's the ongoing value that you can offer somebody more than what can you do for them on your way out the door. Um, I think one of the one of the things that interests me about the um, you know technology and, and technology change that's happening at the moment, um, because everyone is writing and because we have social media and the internet, um, there's a lot more information out there about um, what what's changing and and what's being invented and, and companies that are starting up than there there ever were before, um, and I and I find that the you know the same old topics kind of come round and round again when people are talking about uh, what's going to happen in the future um as someone who you know is a kind of a specialist observer of this chase of of this space what technological change or innovation are you seeing at the moment that people aren't talking about that you think um is critically important hmm well i i mean people are talking about artificial intelligence but Kind of how that debate is going and that discussion, I think, needs to be more nuanced. When when people say artificial intelligence, when you read about it in the media, it means two completely different things. 
One of them is what we call a general intelligence, and that's an AI that's as smart as a human being. That's like C-3PO from Star Wars or Commander Data from Star Trek or, or what have you. And that's a technology we have no idea how to build. We, we don't. Uh, people who are in the field think we're going to get it somewhere between five and 500 years. But that is the very technology that when you hear Elon Musk or, or the late Stephen Hawking warn about artificial intelligence, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about a technology we don't know how to build um, that might kind of spin out of control. If, if a human has an IQ of 100, what would it be like if, a, if an AI had an IQ of 100,000? Like, what would that be? That's still in science fiction. What we know how to build today is something called narrow AI, but we just call it AI as well. And that's an AI that does one thing very well. It's a spam filter in your email. And it's, um, it's what routes you through traffic. And it's what turns your thermostat on when it thinks you're hot in the house and the rest. Unfortunately, those two very different things are both called AI. The spam filter in your email and the crazy 100,000 IQ, you know, thing that will take over the world and destroy us all. And so I think that that distinction, because we don't have, that, that isn't, that isn't uh, something that we, we can kind of, that the debate bifurcates on right now. It's just all kind of lumped into this thing. And so when you hear people say, oh, you should be afraid of this technology, they're talking about one thing that's very different than, you know, your spam filter is not going to take over the world. And, and, and what, that, what that narrow AI can do gets better and better every day. And there are limits to it, very clear limits. It's not magic. It's a technology that says a very simple thing. Let's study the past. Let's study data about the past and make guesses about the future. That's all it is. We're only better at it because we have more data and faster computers, but that's all it is. And, and at its base is the assumption that the future is like the past. And for many things, that's true. A cat tomorrow probably looks like a cat today, and so you can train it on a cat today, and it'll pick. But there are all kinds of things that that doesn't follow. And so I guess that would be it, is be cognizant when you read and think and talk about AI, about which of those two very different things are people talking about so final question um the the people who listen to this uh podcast are working in recruiting and hr and uh you know the sort of people people part of business what would your advice be uh to 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 the audience uh, in terms of what they need to be thinking about um you know researching and planning for um when it comes to uh you know this kind of uh revolutionary fourth age that we're that, that we're kind of living in well, the good news is that those are the kinds of jobs exactly that aren't going away. Anything that has to do with relationships and people. Now, something machines, well, they just can't do it. I mean, they, whether you think they eventually can or not, aside, they cannot today do it. When I was talking earlier about technology creates jobs at the high end and it destroys jobs at the, quote, low end, my advice would be, Apply that to your own job. What, what is stuff you can use technology to give yourself, you know, great new powers like, you know, in your job? And what can you use technology to destroy that you don't need to be doing? And kind of think of your own job that way. Where can you employ technology to buy your time back? You know, it's the only scarce resource we actually have is time. 
And the the reason we've had a rising standard of living. I don't know about you, but I don't work harder than my great-great-grandparents, but I certainly live a much more lavish life than they do. Why? Because an hour of my labor yields a lot more than an hour of their labor. And so I think that's the, the superpower going forward is how can you use technology in your job to not do a bunch of stuff that if a machine can do something, to make a human do that has a word. It's called it's dehumanizing. Because if a machine can do it, it doesn't take anything that requires a human being. And so find all the stuff in your job that a machine can do. Get a machine to do it. And you focus on all of the things that machines cannot do, which is what you just alluded to. The relationship stuff, uh, all of the people stuff, all of the kind of soft organic things that we do very well. And, and so uh, apply technology to your own job and you'll always remain relevant. Wise words indeed. Byron, thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, I had a great time. My thanks to Byron Rees. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or via your podcasting app of choice. The show also has its own dedicated app, which you can find by searching for Recruiting Future in your app store. If you're a Spotify user, you can also find the show there. You can find all the past episodes at www.rfpodcast.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list and find out more about working with me. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week and I hope you'll join me. This is my show. 